Welcome to CPF Firewire, a podcast from California professional firefighters where we discuss a wide range of issues affecting firefighters, our unions, our families, and the communities we serve. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CPF Firewire. I'm Brian Rice and I'm the president of CPF. Today's guest is the CPF Director of Governmental Affairs, Christy Bauma, and we'll be talking about CPF's legislative priorities. Creating and advocating for legislation that protects firefighters' wages, benefits, and working conditions is a large part of what we do at CPF. What we're going to talk about today will be really useful to our members. So, Christy, I want to thank you for um, joining us today. I know you have an incredibly busy schedule, and we can kind of touch on that, too. They'll give, you know, our members, our listeners, an idea of what what a day in your life is like on our behalf. So thank Great. you for being here. I'm thrilled to be here, Brian. Can you can you tell us a little bit about what you and your team do on, you know, what's a typical day? Um, and, and then how did you how did you come to do this type of work? Absolutely. So I think I'll go in the reverse because uh, my path to this work is unusual for other of my colleagues in the business. But um, I two I have two tenets of how I got here. One is I was a high school teacher. I taught math and computers for over a decade. Um, and then I also was um, um, from a firefighter family. My dad was a firefighter in Ontario for a decade. Um, and then after being a firefighter and a board member for CPF, ended up advocating and being the lobbyist for CPF for th- nearly 35 years. Um, and lucky for me, he impassionately, um, he a- applied all his skills of lobbying to convince me that uh, when I was done in the classroom that I should come work with him and advocate on behalf of uh, him and my, fam- my firefighter family and all the firefighter families in California. So it was a, a decision I made uh, not lightly, and I've enjoyed every minute since. So that is how I've come to this work. And I have a team, Megan Subers and Doug Subers, who both uh, took a more traditional route out of college. They were political science majors and were took jobs in public affairs and sort of learned the ropes of how the Capitol Dome works and then found a great interest in policy, which is what lobbyists spend all their time on mostly is is advocating for policies or or working to defeat policies that are bad for for the interests mm-hmm. of their client, when it's this case all my brothers and sisters in the fire service and their families. Um, and so that's how I came to the work. And how could I quickly tell you about the day? This is probably why it's such a great job, because it changes every single day. It depends on where we are in the legislative session about where we're directing our efforts. Uh, sometimes it's research and um, writing bill language and um, trying to develop coalitions around those those bills and talking to members about what's happening in their local jurisdictions that this bill could help or if it hurts. And, and so there's a lot of research and planning. And then there's trying to move that issue through the legislature. And then you're talking. Some days I come home, I'm tired of hearing myself talk. Because you do it <laughs> in little uh, little segments. You you um, There's 120 legislators that you have to get to at some point or at multiple points during the process. And they are hearing from us, but they're also hearing from every other interest in California that has business before the legislature. So you are doing it in little 10 or 15 minute increments. So you tr- you have to be so direct and so precise about what you're seeking or advocating for, 
um, and you just do that because we are lucky and that we have bipartisan interest in the work we do, that means we're talking to all 120. We're not talking to just the 30, 40, 50, now 61 Democrats in the Assembly or et cetera in the, in the Senate. We're talking to everyone. And sometimes it's in the context of a committee vote, and sometimes it's in the context of a big floor vote. So I think I'll more on that later, but that's it's different every day. It, and it it's it's interesting. Um, I mean, I I get and I do legislative updates um, in person once a week, but we're on the phone almost every day over different issues and and some of the things right now. Um, as I, this will be my first full legislative process from start to finish. Our bills have just come off a of suspense, which, which means um, we went through our committee hearings and then kind of just, just describe that a little bit, what the, the committee hearing is like, what it means to be on suspense, what it means to come out. Certainly. So every piece of legislation, good, bad, or otherwise, that moves to, moves to the governor has to go through both houses of the legislature, regardless of where they get introduced. So you may hear, if you come to a district meeting, I talk about AB 123 or SB 456, and the A means assembly bill, and the, the S means Senate for Senate bill. And that all that tells you is where they started their journey. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so uh, the process is that each bill has to go through both houses. So as Brian just described, we introduce bills, and they first have a policy hearing. You just talk about the policy. Then they have a fiscal hearing. And I should back up. Sometimes bills have multiple policy hearings if they touch different areas. Maybe it's a health care issue that also has implications in the Judiciary Committee. And so you go to both of those committees. Either way, you move through your policy hearings, and then you go to a fiscal hearing, which is the Appropriations Committee. That's what it's called in both houses. And that committee's job is to strictly look at what is the fiscal impact of this bill, whether it's impact to the state, to local uh, local governments, to business, uh, any anything that involves the dollar, that's what the, that committee addresses. And the legislature has a process where they take all of those bills that cost money and they hold them for a period of time because what's also happening during the course of the year is uh, the state budget. And so because bills that cost money could implicate the state budget, they, they try to time those out. So all of our policy hearings got done in April and, 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 and the fiscal hearings in May. And what Brian just referenced is the suspense file, which maybe it's named appropriately because all your bills will live or die based on what this committee does. And that suspense hearing was actually timely for this conversation was yesterday. And CPF had... Uh, four bills on the suspense file in the Assembly and two bills on the suspense file in the Senate. So we were, again, all that talking, talking, tired of hearing ourselves talk. We were, we were talking to the leaderships and leadership in both houses. We were talking to the chairs of the fiscal committee and all of the members of those fiscal committees to convince them that regardless of the cost, these bills were worthy of coming off awesome. of suspense. And so that is the like a term of art in the building, the suspense file, and then coming off of suspense is a good thing because uh, that means they are reported from the fiscal committee to the floor of each house that they started. So then they'll be sitting on the floor, and the next two weeks we're going to be spending talking to every single member of the legislature who hasn't already voted on this issue uh, 
about these bills to make sure they'll support them. And maybe even ones who already have, because as you may have heard in some of our updates, either online or through district meetings, these bills change. They get amended. You're always negotiating with all the various interests that are paying attention to what you're doing. And so you may have to go back, talk to a senator again, because the bill has changed substantially since they last saw it in committee. So a lot of walking, a lot of talking. And then just to close, I would say then that flips. And once they get all the way through the first house, they go to the second house, and the process starts over. Policy, fiscal, floor. And then just to confuse you at the end, the houses have to agree on what each other have done to a bill. So if a bill starts in the assembly, goes to the Senate, and the Senate changes it, it has to go back to the assembly. For That's approval. called a concurrence Acceptance, vote. Concurrence. Yep. And they're just concurring with what the other house did. And so they're, they're, most times you do end up end, amending a bill in the, in the other house, so a concurrence vote is pretty common. So you will have three full floor votes, Com uh, the house of origin, the second house, and then back to the house of origin, and then For to the, the concurrence governor. Concurrence, and yes. then moving forward. And what, what's interesting to me in this process, and, and that's really what I want our listeners and our members to know, it is incredibly fluid and dynamic. And that even as Christy was describing, each of those processes, um, the hearing processes, a committee suspense, and then the floor hearings and back and forth, there is continual um, discussion from our ledge team to legislators or legislative staffers. And um, at least in my role as a president, um, whether, whether it's an urgent phone call for backup information on a certain position or a text message if a phone call can't be made because of the situation, it, it has really been fascinating to me to be a part of um, that work. It's very fast-paced, and one of the things that I learned um, and I always knew this, but as, as a local union president, City Hall and the County Board of Soups is far different than the state capital. And one of the things that I learned, um, Christy, from you and your team, words matter. And if you, and at times our, our, members, our members are up here testifying, and the words matter, and the bullet points that we provide our members to stay right on track of those bullets um, you just, I, it just didn't dawn on me how important it is that what comes out of your mouth and the way that it does and the attitude, it all weighs in. And um, it can weigh in in our success or it can weigh in in a negative way against us. That's absolutely true. Words are so significant. And sometimes it's just about the fact that we understand the backstory of what how this bill is arrived at this committee or how a particular senator is viewing this bill through the lens of what's happening at home in their district or um, some other political dynamic that's happening at home that would uh, impact their judgment on a policy because, you know, that sort of thing is inseparable, the legislative and the political. And so when we try to provide talking points, um, we will offer, you know, bring your passionate story, your local story about how this impacts you, but also... You know, we certainly will have some lines to stay within sometimes because we don't want to trigger more uh, more harm than good when we bring you up here because we understand some of those underlying uh, biases that um, we want to empower you to, you know, help us move something forward. So, 
It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating process. Let's talk about um, some of our priority bills for this latest legislative session and start out with the behavioral health um, package, SB 542 and AB 1116. And can you talk about, talk about those bills and where they are in the process? Absolutely. So uh, I will start with AB 1116 because it's more of a prevention side uh, measure and then SB 542, which is a more response to a need, a health need that results from all of the uh, traumatic experiences that our members are exposed to every day. So AB 1116 was a bill you've heard about because we actually did it last year and unsuccessfully did not secure a signature. So it's been reintroduced and that is a bill that establishes a statewide model for peer support training programs in California for firefighters specifically. Uh, and what is also significant about this bill is that it creates a privilege of confidentiality in the law so that any communications that would occur between a peer supporter and a firefighter are protected by confidentiality with all of the expected exemptions that, you know, needing to break the confidentiality to prevent bodily harm or commission of a crime. But for the most part, a peer support program, as I'm sure every member could profess to me, uh, is only valid and helpful when the members know they can have a conversa confidential conversation with their peer. So that bill, uh, very significantly, is sitting on the floor of the assembly. So it was just passed off suspense yesterday, had a mild cost to the state, so they had we had to wait, and it did come out. So sometime this week, it'll be, be subject to a floor vote. Once it passes the floor, it'll go to the Senate. Uh, the Senate Bill 542 is our post-traumatic stress injury presumption bill. Um, and that policy is always of great controversy in the legislature. There are lots of interests who believe that a presumption in workers' comp, which essentially just means if you have that disease or injury, it's presumed that your job caused it. All it does is shift the burden of proof from the member suffering to the employer to demonstrate that it wasn't your job, uh, which the hope and aspiration of a presumption is then it gets you into the system and into treatment faster. That's the whole goal. Now, I'm not going to kid you all listening. Employers will do as their, as their insurers and third-party administrators advise them, and often that you still will may experience an initial denial. They have 90 days to make that decision, and many of them wait the whole 90 days. So uh, I would just say it's, it's a helpful tool. It's not a be-all, end-all, but so significant uh, for our membership. This one by Senator Stern, SB 542, also came off the suspense file in the Senate yesterday and is on the floor for a vote this coming week. And, and I mean, over the course of discussion... Um Candidate, gubernatorial candidate Gavin Newsom, then governor-elect and Governor Newsom has been very positive um, towards uh, a PTSI presumptive. I don't believe I'm stepping too far out of line um, by saying that, but it doesn't mean that we don't have work to do here. And one of the things here for me is I listen to um, testimony and 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 you as our members, and I, I really want everybody to key in on this. Um, a PTSI presumptive is, it's about securing and putting our members in a position that they can get a health issue addressed without fear 
of you know, a fitness for duty evaluation or um, getting that scarlet letter, it puts our members in a position that they can come forward and seek help. It is not a bill that is about getting a retirement out of it. It Post-traumatic stress injury, you can heal from it. And I think as we, as we move forward and you as our members have an ability to talk um, with your local legislators about this, you really need to key in that it is the healing from this injury. It's not, it, it, you can heal from it. And that's really, um, unfortunately, the other side of this is there's probably going to be some, some instances where we're going to have retirements over it because the in injury is so crippling. But that's a, that's a small piece of this. What it really is, is, um, it's coming out of the shadows, like we've been saying. It's a recognition um, of mental health issues that firefighters um, suffer. Absolutely, so. absolutely true. And I just maybe tee off a little bit on your comment about a lot of work to do. Um, this governor did make a commitment. It was, a, I don't know if you've ever heard the expression, that was candidate Gavin Newsom, and now you're talking to Governor Gavin Newsom. And that is a dynamic. It is not a, uh, any, a criticism. It is just that he now, as the leader of California, has to balance so many things uh, in policy and in fiscal matters. And so we do have to do our homework and make the case to him that this is the right policy now that he is our sitting governor. And so that is what we will continue to do uh, as we advocate for this bill moving forward. Yeah, even... Our governor has a job to do, and that, and that is not just to govern, but to look out and do the best possible for every citizen in California, and he has his own diligence to do. Um, it's, it's, it's positive that we have a governor that recognizes behavioral health is important and recognizes um, uh, post-traumatic stress injury. Now, now we do the work and let's get it there and we'll bring it home. And uh, Brian, I might add too, I, I just note when these bills get heard um, in policy committee, that is a more focused discussion with more attention. And so we were quite honored to have uh, Rex uh, Pritchard from Local 372 come up and testify on that bill. Uh, I tell your stories with great passion and love because it comes from my heart but you tell your stories like no other. And so we were very honored to have Rex come up and speak to this issue and his role on the Behavioral Health Task Force and awareness of, of this issue uh, in the fire service. And then also we had former Kern County President Derek Robinson come up and tell his story for SB 542. Uh, there wasn't a dry eye in that committee room that day, and there was no scenario where a legislator could find a way to do anything other than support right. that bill that day. That's how significant your your participation in this process is to the success of these policies. So I just wanted to make that point. I I I agree. It was it was tough. It it was tough to as a as a professional firefighter, retired professional firefighter, um it was it was hard to your peers and they put it out there when they didn't have to. Um it it just brought that much more meaning to the work that we get to do on on behalf of the members of the CPF. Um, 
Switching gears a little bit, another bill I'd like to talk about, um, community paramedicine, AB 1544. Uh, we recently had uh, one of our members, Patrick Corder, from Alameda County Firefighters Local 55, come up and testify in support uh, at the Capitol. And we're going to take a listen to his testimony. So we'll take a short pause and listen to that. Once again, my name is Patrick Corder. I'm from the city of Alameda. We are uh, we have run a community paramedic program for the better part of four years now. Um, in the interest of time, and since my third grade teacher called me loquacious on my report card, I will simply say that um, the community paramedic program and the ones that we've run and also the ones that have been run throughout the state, they're a proactive way of dealing with a lot of the issues that we see out on the streets every day. Um, the people that we help are often the most vulnerable in our society, uh, people that don't have a network of resources. If any of you have had uh, family members friends who have been in the healthcare system for any kind of treatment, you understand that the system is not set up to, to, uh, to get people 100% when they're released. Um, oftentimes, it's just to get them healthy enough to get out of the door and continue treatment at home. Um, where our program comes in uh, is to basically fill gaps that exist in the system as, as, it, currently, uh, as it currently faces us. Um, we do not replicate services. We're not trying to be nurses. Um, we're simply using our trusted positions um, to uh, effectively treat people in our communities that would oftentimes go untreated otherwise. Um, sometimes it's as simple as, as just making a phone call and making sure that someone's got a medication on hand or if they need to get it, that we can go pick it up for them. Uh, other times it's as simple as, uh, as calling the home health agencies that people were assigned, that people had assigned to them on their way out of the hospital and finding out when they're going to start the services because sometimes something as simple as a, a form not being signed properly stops the entire process so someone's discharged home and they don't get any follow-up care because someone didn't fill out a form properly or it wasn't received properly. Um, so again, in the interest of time, I appreciate you having me here today. The program does work. The data shows it. Um, UCSF is happy to provide it um, on behalf of the programs that were run throughout the state. And I thank you for your time today. So community paramedicine, I think most of us know what it's about. Alternative transport um, is a big, uh, um, a big piece of that discussion, whether it's a behavior or uh, a mental health facility, um, a, a step down clinic situation um, as opposed to an ER or a sobering center um, uh, or a treatment facility. And Christy, can we talk about a little bit, have you explained to listeners, not, not just what the bill does, but where it is in the process and, and really what I want our listeners to hear is kind of that conversation that you have with the legislators to bring them a full understanding of, uh, or a fuller understanding of what community paramedicine is. Certainly. So I'll, I'll pick and choose here the, in the order, um, in the process, the bill is, um, also was on the suspense file and just got voted off the suspense file yesterday. So it will be ready for a floor vote next week in the assembly. Um, and as Brian described, this basically authorizes paramedics to work in an expanded role to do various things in the community to help um, really relieve pressures in our emergency response and healthcare system, whether it is what Patrick talked about and doing post-discharge follow-up in the short term, uh, or if it's uh, authorizing paramedics to transport a patient somewhere other than the emergency room. Uh, I know you could all tell us stories about patients that you encounter and encounter frequently uh, that aren't suffering from a crisis that can be well served in an emergency department. And so this bill has been tested by through pilots that exist now. That's how why Alameda City is participating and can do this now without a bill. Uh, but they will all stop if um, this if these pilots don't get authorized statewide. So that is the point of having 
um, a piece of legislation to authorize that. It community. I mean, we all know this community paramedicine. It's 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 an outstanding program, and it truly is going to help the community. Um, this one. It, I mean. There's no sure thing on any of our bills, but this one, um, I'd, I'd ask everybody, if you're a member of CPF, keep in tune and, and stay informed on community paramedicine because it's going to be a lift. Um, but on the backside of it, it's going to position firefighter paramedics and firefighter EMTs to better serve their communities, to offer more appropriate treatment and transport and potentially ease some of the burden on the hospital emergency room. So this is a bill for me, I, I really want our members to pay attention to any other bills that you think our members should, should watch. I mean, they should yes. watch them all, but. Right. So um, actually Brian said something that triggered an important point on this bill that I should mention. There are plenty of groups that want to authorize community paramedicine in California for various reasons, to cut costs, to draw attention away from hospitals and the overcrowding they have in their emergency rooms. The reason I would say for your membership in CPF and your participation in the legislative process is that CPF then can be the sponsor of a bill, which means the bill is written with the mind of firefighters in the field. And so this bill says fire departments should have the first right of refusal to provide this service. That doesn't exist in any of the other plans of any of these other interest groups that want to authorize these programs. They want to do it on the cheap. They want to hire a private ambulance company to do it. They want to do it for profit. They want to do it for profit, so not for patient care. And what I'm going to quote President Rice, who's, who's quoted others who have uh, recounted this statement. EMS is a service, not an industry. So this is a service bill. And by having the, the, the political power to sponsor legislation, as CPF does, that's how we can write things to our advantage to better equip you to do this service uh, for your communities. So thank you for that, Brian. Well said. Thanks, Christy. Sure. And then I think the other bill, we, again, you can check the website for other things we're working on, but um, we're working on a bill related to EMS dispatch. So... We are um, trying to, on the same theme, prevent, prevent decisions from being contracted out to providers who are just paying attention to their bottom line. I think that's a shortcut. It's SB 438, and I'll just I'll let that be a teaser and say you should check out what we're doing. It's a great controversy, so we probably, if you haven't heard from, this one, from us on this one already, you will, because we need these stories told about the harm of contracting out this work. We recently had our legislative conference where firefighters from locals across the state came together to learn about our legislative priorities and advocate for these bills at the state capitol. Let's listen to what some of our firefighters had to say about that experience. We're here at the state capitol engaging with uh, our state senators and our state uh, assembly representatives and kind of providing them information on what we are here doing, fighting for our residents and for the firefighters across the state to provide better working conditions and what we think are important to us. You know, on the state level, CPF is just a powerhouse. It's, it's a powerhouse for our local. It's a powerhouse representing all the other locals uh, in the state. They work really well with the IAFF. They work really well with our individual locals. It's a fantastic experience. They've put together a, a wonderful package for us to come out here and really, you know, get their message across with the, the guys in the boots and the gals in the boots. I tip my hat to Brian Rice and Mike Lopez for what they've put together. 
Christy, what's the impact on the legislators when firefighters personally come to advocate for their profession? Oh, well, there's no substitute from telling your own story. I think I said earlier in the podcast that, uh, you know, I express the position of the, f- the fire service, you know, on your behalf every day with all the respect and appreciation for the job you do every day. But I don't do that job every day. And when you come to the Capitol and tell that story, it's hard to say other, anything other than yes. And some of you might even say, Chrissy, your job must be easy because everywhere I go, they just want to help. That's not how it goes when you're not in town. And I, you know this because you deal with your local cities and boards of supervisors. Everybody loves a firefighter, but when it comes to decisions that require difficult policy or significant public dollars, they're balancing, and that's a harder question. But when you come to Sacramento and tell your story, it matters. It changes hearts and minds. Christy, I just I just want to say... Um, not just to you and your team, um, but for our membership to hear it. Uh, your team sets, sets the bar for the work that's done at the Capitol. And on behalf of all 30,000 plus members of the California Professional Firefighters, um, we thank you and we're honored to have you guys on our team. So with that, we're about out of time. Thanks, thanks for being here today. Look forward to doing it again. Thank you. It is my deepest honor to represent this profession. Thank you for saying that.